Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire series of Harry Bosch, so please proceed with extreme caution. It was impossible. All this is covered in the report we typed up, Lieutenant. I've gone over it seems like ten times already. Pounce acted as though he didn't hear. And he's a lawyer, no less. So what? Bosch said, now losing his patience. We apologize. It was a mistake. The car looked the same. And if he's going to sue anyone, it will be the FBI. They got deeper pockets, so don't worry about it. No, he's going to sue us both. He's already talking about it, for Christ's sake. And now's not the time to be funny, Bosch. It's also not the time to be worried about what we did or did not do right. None of the suits of coming here to interview me seem to care about someone's out there trying to kill us. They want to know how far away I was when I fired my weapon, and whether I endangered bystanders, and why I pulled over the car without probable cause. Well, fuck it, man! Someone's out there to kill me and my partner, and excuse me, I don't feel particularly sorry for the lawyer who got his suspenders twisted. Hello. And welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook page. Now all that's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe deep into part six of the Black Echo. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored part five of the Black Echo, where, early on the fifth morning of the investigation, Bosch is summoned to a murder scene, finding it is Sharky. Bosch believes that Sharky's ultimate death is a result of insiders on the force divulging detailed information to criminals. Bosch and Rourke argue after Bosch makes a vague innuendo concerning possible leaks. Rourke counters by telling Bosch that his own IED has been following him to get him suspended. Bosch interrogates the two IED detectives about the unauthorized wiretap of his phone. Bosch and Wish meet up again and find the identity of two involved Vietnam criminals. Later, Bosch and Wish go to Wish's apartment, but as they exit their car, they're nearly struck by a speeding car. During this episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into part six, Friday, May 25th. As always, there's a prerequisite concerning spoilers. It is my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So proceed with caution. And now, the thin blue line, Harry Bosch. Let's open up the murder book and turn a page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. No one understands how a cop can fail to get a car's make. Pounds is the angriest that they pulled over a lawyer who is sure to sue and a dozen motors have called 911. Bosch is determined to clear this case and demands that ID pour their tail. When Pounds show clear surprise, Bosch wonders himself about Lewis and Clark's whereabouts when they nearly got ran down. 
Pounds requests a full rundown of the case and asks if LAPD should be searching the tunnels if FBI will not. Bosch realizes that Pounds wants the glory if there is a bust, but agrees with Rourke that stumbling around the underground is too risky. Bosch tells Pounds that he wants to first work on finding Tran and his stash. Rourke believes the drunk driver theory and asks Wish if she has a jealous lover. Wish and Bosch joke about this and agree to return to Wish's home. The next day, Bosch and Wish agreed to meet up at Hollywood Station. While there, they agreed to move the investigation further. They're going to have to interview Ben. Utilizing investigative methods, it is revealed that Ben's office and business is on Vermont near Wilshire. Ben owns the building that his office and discount video equipment store is based in. Just before the interview of Ben begins, Bosch puts in motion a plan in case Ben is uncooperative. Bosch and Wish begin to interview Ben, and during the interview, Ben again states that he suffered no loss as a result of the bank's break-in. As previously planned, Edgar pages Bosch. During this fake phone call, Bosch installs a listening device on Ben's telephone. Just as Bosch had believed, the interview of Ben is not going well. Bosch cuts across Wish during her questioning and advises Ben that law enforcement is aware of his activities in Vietnam and the proceeds in MASH by him and Tran. Bosch tells Ben that Tran's diamonds are in jeopardy of being stolen and requests Tran's location. Ben states that he does not know Tran. Upon arriving to their car, Bosch tells Wish that he installed a listening device. Wish is initially outraged, but relents after Bosch explains to her that he does not plan to use the evidence gathered against Ben, but as a means to locate Tran. A short time later, Ben calls a number and speaks to a person Bosch believes is Tran. Utilizing numbers captured during the call, Bosch is able to track down another business that is suspected to be owned by Tran. Bosch and Wish respond to the Thai food pagoda and identify Tran, who is utilizing an alias by the name of Jimmy Bach. They agree to set up on Tran and follow him to see where he has stashed his cut of the diamonds. Later, Tran responds to the Beverly Hills Safe and Lock, which caters to the wealthy and famous for storage of their valuables. Bosch follows Tran into the location and poses as a would-be client and is given a tour of the vault. Tran is observed leaving the location carrying a briefcase cuffed to his wrist. After Tran leaves, Bosch identifies himself as a detective and demands to speak to the manager. Around the corner from the Beverly Hills safe and lock, Lewis awaits to talk to Irving. Impatient that he's not promptly available for the hourly landline reports he demands. Lewis believes that Wish and Bosch followed the Mercedes without knowing its destination, but figures out something when they arrived. Irving spends 10 minutes outlining his theory and gives instructions to watch them all night and phone him at home for approval before moving in. The Beverly Hills safe and lock salesman is stunned as Bosch waits for Wish. Bosch introduces Wish to Avery before taking her into an office for a private conversation. Wish advises that Rourke wants them to watch and wait while he contacts DPW. Rourke also promises reinforcement for surveillance. A quick surveillance team is assembled and meets at the parking garage across from the Beverly Hills safe and lock. During this meeting, it is agreed that the team should wait for the criminals to emerge from the suspected tunnels and then apprehend them as they try to leave. While on surveillance, Wish asked Bosch about the dollmaker case again. She expressed that she knew that Bosch could never admit that he shot and killed the dollmaker as seeking justice. But if he did, she respects his action and given the opportunity, she had hoped that she would be brave enough to do the same.
Hello. We begin this chapter review, as always. Well, a little bit different this time. I'm 1099 in police language. That means by myself. So, as always, we begin this chapter uh, just picking up from what happened. And as you remember, we left chapter five with a, uh, a car chase and Bosch and them pulling over a car. Bosch now is back at the, at the uh, PD being interviewed by everyone. But when he started this chapter, what I like about Michael Connolly again, and uh, just please let me know if I'm overly, because I keep doing it, so I'm going to keep doing it. Just I want you to understand how authentic he is and the brilliance of his writing. One of the things that he really, really, really captured was, as we said in previous podcasts, hindsight is twenty twenty in cop work. And everybody in there is asking him questions. And like, like you said, he was just waiting for someone from IRS to come in and interview him also. And he really lost his temper with, with, with um, Pounds. And what was great about this with Pounds is that, but, but then he got Pounds because he gave Pounds some information that Pounds didn't know, especially the fact that he got up on the two ID investigators who um, he found out was uh, surveilling him. But it was it, it was a it was a really good exchange with how things happen when you have a especially doing a police chase, a police chase you again sh- shooting your weapon, police chase any law enforcement, and everybody uh, wants to second guess you. What did you do? Why'd you do it? First, as Bosch said, he actually wrote down what happened, and but they don't want to hear what happened. They want you. They everyone can read it, but they want you to tell the story. Tell me the story of what happened. So he had to revisit over and over and over again. He gets Pounds on his side by using Pounds' greed against him. Because like any, most, most officials, you know, they, they become officials, they want to move up the ranks. And if he can get a data boy from the chief and solve one of the biggest capers so far, not, uh, one of the bigger capers in recent memories, especially the unique caper, then why not? So Bosch gets him on the hook by telling him, well, don't believe everything Rourke is telling you. And he also lets him know, yeah, I know you've been being copied. And he uses the terminology, the paper, on what's been going on with me, which is totally against their policies and procedure when it comes to union and the um, his rights. But he, he forgoes that and runs down the case with, with, uh, with Lieutenant Pounds. And Pounds then hungrily and greedily says, well, do you think we should put some people in the in our tunnels if they're not? And Bosch says the right thing. You know, no, Rourke, he kind of believes what Rourke said. And you got to think about it. You know, Just stumbling around inside the tunnel at that point in time would cause a problem because you never know, especially since the booby traps. After Pounds tells him he, he's free to go, Pounds does somewhat put, extend a hand of friendship or olive branch to Bosch. And Bosch, again, smacks it away. Because just remember, uh, we started this, I think it was chapter two, where he got on, when he is in pounds, got on Bosch talking about, I don't care about you anymore. You know, you got me in this jam and what they do with you. Now, all of a sudden, he wants to extend a hand. And that's kind of hard. Again, I think we're uh, five days removed from him throwing him under the bus and throwing him out to the wolves with, um, with ID. And he pretty much even said so in his exchange with, 
with pounds and say, look, I can, if you get these damn IED dogs off my back, I can probably, you know, solve this thing. So when he gets out um, from the interview with pounds, he meets up with Eleanor and Eleanor kind of tells him, well, I like, I like where uh, Michael says, you know, they look as though they're, they're children who got, got over on adults. You know, they gave each other that kind of look. And Eleanor kind of tells him, well, I was finished almost an hour ago. And, you know, but you're the one that really want it. Because remember, we got to always preface he is, he goes against the grain. He's not part of the family. He calls it, he calls straight up the, you know, balls and strikes. So they want to really, really grind into the fact of what he did, how he did it. Was he was in policy, was he in policy and procedure when he actually did it? We then turn to them going back to Eleanor's place, as as he said, uh, you know, let's, you know, Eleanor. I think Eleanor said, "Let's, you want to go back to where we tried to do something four hours ago." So they go back to their place, and I think one of the things that shows his tender side, uh, <laughs> that I feel uncomfortable hearing from last podcast with my brother. I, I, I want to stay away from the whole lovemaking thing because this is not that type of podcast. But I thought what was really interesting again to show. Quickly, how quickly he actually starting to really develop an affection for Eleanor was the fact that, again, sometimes the most intimate moments don't involve sex. And it was more of a let's hold each other because it was a life and death situation. So that was Eleanor and him kind of talked about that. And that was pretty cool because I like how Michael gives us and gets us in the world of Harry. He's not a robot. He's just a human being. And as human beings, we all crave affection. We all crave personal interaction. And especially being a cop, especially the type of cop he is, it's very lonely. It's a very lonely profession at times. It takes a special person, man or woman, to be a spouse or a significant other of a of a cop. And to find somebody like that is very, very humbling, very revealing, and very, 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 very precious. So the next day they agree, well, they agree to meet back up at uh, the Hollywood division. And again, once again, Michael puts you in the world of cops. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, you know, Eleanor is showing up at the Hollywood division and walking, uh, I believe at the time, all the detectives pretty much was, was in the uh, squad room. And she walked in front, you know, walked down, uh, to walk to Bosch's desk and all the male guys turned their head again, just to let you know, again, it's such a, it was such a rarity to have a very, have a female, attractive, aggressive female back in 92 was a rarity, but you know, cops are men and, and the political correctness back then was nowhere near where it was now. And again, for my female police uh, uh, sisters, what you had to go through back then was amazing, and that's why I, I I really 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 appreciate the 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 obstacles you had to you had to overcome to make it in police work. Because a lot of times you put up with a lot of stuff that most of those guys don't understand, which you had to put up with, and it just the the misogynist attitude that a lot of the police officers had from uh, inappropriate conversations to inappropriate. Uh, paraphernalia on the wall. I mean, it was just outlandish, but I digress and I will move on. Bosch and Wish, after trying to not have to talk to Ben, 
they said, well, you know what? I think we're just going to have to go talk to Ben. And before they, they on, on, on the way there, well, before they get there, after they get there, Bosch puts in motion a plan to, just in case the conversation with Ben goes awry. And what Bosch did was he took the Niagara recorder from what he got from his house that was recording him. He asked Edgar to give him a call. <laughs> and again, you know, you got to like Edgar in this particular chapter because Bosch calls him up and say, hey, buddy. He goes, what do you want? That Again, that Bosch is not the type of guy who just calls you and say, hey. So when Edgar gets a phone call from Bosch, he, you know, you know, cer- certain cops know when another guy is calling you, it's not, hey, Phil, what's going on? How are the kids? How are the wife and kids? How, are everything going? Where are you going on vacation? It's what they want. And he, this Bosch is that type of detective. When, when you see, well, again, back then they have call ID, but when you, when you pick up the phone and you hear his voice, you go, oh, shit, what does he want? And especially even Edgar says in this particular portion of the book, he says, you know, we're in the fishbowl. They're looking out after us. And he actually made a good point. You know, after all what him and Bosch have seemingly gone through, true test of partners is that they were fighting and, you know, with each other. But he told him, hey, no, uh, the word around here is that was no damn hit and run or no drunk driver. Watch your ass out there. Because at the end of the day, they're both a blue. They're both men in blue. And he want to make sure that Bosch is taken care of or take care of himself. But as, as I was saying, so he calls Edgar and says, hey, dude, just do me a favor. Do me a solid. In about 10 minutes, just give me a, call, give me a page. Give me a page. And he, he goes, that's all you want. Yeah, just give me a page. All right. And so he did it. So they go in, meets with Ben. And again, Michael puts you in the world of this guy. He's a power. You can tell he reeks of authority, power. You, see, you know those type of people. Just walking in a room. They think they're the shit. They used to running things. And last thing they wanted to do is be, um, is to be um, subservient to anybody, specifically police officers. So specifically law enforcement. So they start the bullshit interview. Just ask him again, hey, um, we're just going back over, you know, the rules they came up with. And Bosch made a point to... Well, excuse me, um, Michael made a point to this particular guy use, uses his, quote unquote, l- um, lack of um, the, the command of the English language as a barrier so that he can kind of extract from you what you want actually from him or to frustrate you. And I've seen it time and time again when you do, uh, when you in, uh, interview or you have a, a particular a particular nationality group that you got to interview. Well, the PD that we were with set up a 1-800 number so that you can have, I'm pretty sure all, all uh, major metropolitan um, police have the same thing where you can just call in, give a PIN number, and then you can have a, a great dialogue with an interpreter right there. And I believe, yeah, there, there is a recorded line. So, you know, you, it, it helps you out when it comes to going straight to that bullshit barrier that a lot of times that, that immigrants use, again, to put you off on your investigative techniques when it comes to interviewing, your, in, your interview investigative techniques. Ben uses this to his advantage. Bosch receives his phone call, the, pre, the, the pretense phone call, or page, again, page from Edgar. And while he's getting this page, while he's having this seemingly phone call with Edgar, 
He then installs the recording device onto Ben's uh, telephone. Eleanor is trying her best to solicit some information from Ben. Bosch pretty much knew it wasn't going to be that way. You got to think of an old guy uh, back back then in, 90, in 92, this this strong police captain for from Vietnam. He's not impressed with the cops here you know, because we abide by too many rules. I mean, un- unfortunately, well, fortunately for him, you know, the law enforcement here, we abide by too many rules. Think about it. He was um, part of a triad law enforcement of captains who, you know, sold uh, protection. So what, he, he's not impressed with the cops here. Again, we have too many rules. And that's not a bad thing, just, just an observance. As Bosch thought, Ben's not really being cooperative. So what he does is he cuts right across as Eleanor is trying to solicit information from Ben. He cuts right across um, Eleanor and dominates the conversation in a point where he didn't really do it. In my in, in, in my idea, in my, I suspect he didn't do it specifically to piss off Eleanor, but to piss off Ben, to make Ben feel hurried to call Tran. So Bosch cuts across Eleanor, say, hey, look, no, I'm gonna say, hey, look, dude, we know about your corrupt activities in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, he even said, so? <laughs> Bosch said, so what? And what are you going to do about it? Again, not, I'm not in, basically, I'm not impressed with you. And he pretty much said, look, you're out of it. You know, we just want to you know, speak to Tran because we think it's another robbery going down, blah, 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 blah. And again, Michael rightly expressed or wrote or give you the vision of talking to Ben where Ben his English got even worse. And so, again, he's trying to shut down this whole thing so he can keep on doing what he's doing. And so they leave, and Eleanor, they get back in the car, and Eleanor goes, great, you know, you, you, you blew that. And then that's when he shows her the Niagara. So let's talk about the fact that Bosch used an illegal wiretap to get information on this case. Ah. Uh, well, as he, as Eleanor first said, why didn't he, so some people said, why didn't you tell Eleanor? Because when you, as soon as he told Eleanor, then he was trying to protect her, which is true. Because he made the call on us. If you discuss it with your partner that you're going to do something, then agree or not, they become culpable to whatever the outcome happens. That's why he didn't tell her. And that's actually, if, that, that's, that's a mark of a good, good par- partner. Now, if they worked any longer, she probably knew that Harry was going to do something, but maybe not that. But so Harry, as he explained to her, look, I'm not going to use this evidence against Ben. I'm just trying to find Tran. And again, in law enforcement, you have to use a lot of different ruses and a lot of different angles to to get the objective of when it comes to moving your investigation further. And you have to make a tactical decision. Am I going to if it, what I'm going to do right now would never would never ever be brought up in court because I can't use it because it was fruit from a poisonous tree. And so you can't do that. So you have to make the tactical decision is what I'm trying to get worth or what I'm about to lose. So he actually made that decision. And I'm not going to Monday night quarterback him. I'm not going to second guess him. He did it and we're going to move on. But what I thought was kind of funny was, again, for our younger uh, for my younger listeners, you know, the old rotor, rotor, uh, rotary phones, and, you know, they could hear the clicks going back and forth, so they were able to then use that in the re- reverse directory. And, again, that is so spot on. I can't tell you how many times 
uh, that you either called the dispatcher or you went to a payphone. And in our office, we had this big, thick book. It's called a reverse directory. And literally, that's all it was. I mean, you, to put you in the world, is this thick book of all the telephone numbers with the area code. And it was, it, it was um, in order, uh, numerical order. So if I gave a telephone number of uh, 712-582, whatever, 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 I would call the office and say, hey, go to the, go to the reverse directory. Let me know who's that number, who, you know, what, what's the address that number belongs to. And it's kind of hard to, uh, I wish, I think I'll put, I'll, I'm actually, I'll, if I can find one on the internet, I'll post a picture of the of reverse directory. Because nowadays, that's all we do is Google it. I mean, that, that tells you the power of the internet, but I'm, I'll digress. But that brought up a really, that brought up a, a nice memory of mine when, when he called that. Again, that's authentic. That's what happened back in 92. That's how, that was our internet by calling the reverse directory. So using the reverse directory, they were able to go to, trans um, uh, business, which was the Thai food pagoda. And I hope that I did not, I'm not, I, I know I messed up. So all, all my Vietnam, Vietnamese um, listeners, I apologize right off the bat. And they, so they then confirmed that is a, a trans or a, a, a person who they now use an alias, uh, Jimmy Bach. Just to recap, the whole idea was the reason that Metals was killed because he's messed up. It was a two-parter. The first part was to get Ben's diamond. The second part was to get Trans diamond. And the fact of the matter that that doggone bracelet showed up messed up the whole scheme. So this is this is actually the the would be the murderers and would be robbers are putting play the second the second element of the particular crime. Eleanor then calls. A, they start developing a plan. Rourke says, "Hey, sit tight, do some observances." I'm going to call DPW. We're going to, you know, we'll meet. There's a, there's a, a garage right across from there. We'll all, we will meet, and then we will come up with a game plan on what we're going to do next. So, as my brother keeps pointing out during this book, IAD is omnipresent in Bosch's life. Throughout this chapter, he noticed a police vehicle following him still, staying in the woodwork, staying kind of back a little bit. And he even um, he even thought when he was being interviewed that where was Lewis and Clark when the uh, motors almost ran him over when the would be person tried to kill him and um, Eleanor. But he thought, well, oof, I must be in the clear because there's nothing happened to me. They didn't file any papers on me, so I must be in the clear. But they're still following him. So we pick up this part of the book where Lewis is given a briefing to Irving. And again, just to tell you, show you the type of, uh, the type of um, person Lewis is. And in, in cop work, we see it all the time. You know, he, there's a vagrant asking for money or checking. Again, I, I laugh at, at all counts how old you are. I, I, I don't know where you are in your, in your area where you live, but how many people have pay phones anymore? So I, I'm probably talking to some audience who don't know about payphones, and if you're around my age, you remember as a kid going around to the payphones and and putting your finger in the slot and see how much you see if any change was in there. And so this is what this one vagrant was doing. He was kind of doing the same thing, looking for change, and he told the guy to fuck off. And then Irving got on the phone, was like what? It, it, and again, you got to respect Irving, even though he's a pure dick. He still it's so complex. It's not nothing is really 
black or white. Everything, there's so many shades of gray in law enforcement. And Irvin pretty much said, what, you talk to the citizens like that? And Lewis hurried up and got off the, the conversation. Well, I got a report, sir. Go ahead with the report. And so Lewis tells him that, you know, of course, Bosch and uh, Eleanor followed uh, a car to this um, Beverly Hills safe and lock. Irvin was familiar with that particular location, that establishment. And then Irvin gives him a rundown, what he wants him to do. But one of the things that Irvin said to him, one, he gave him his personal home number. He said, do not make a move unless you talk to me. And he goes, yes, sir, right away, sir. Of course, sir. And then, and then uh, Irving ceremoniously hangs up on him. Again, that it tells you the type of uh, person Irving is. He doesn't even say goodbye. And this happens throughout the whole interaction when um, Lewis interacts with Irving. Um, well, we're assuming, you know, you shouldn't assume in cop work, but I'm pretty sure Clark, Clark was maintaining the surveillance on the two people so he can report back if there's any changes. So Bosch and Wish agree again. They agree to go to the parking garage and wait for Rourke to um, get the next plan of attack. And Michael puts the reader into visualizing as Bosch had portrayed this parade of police cars coming up the ramp. And I can't tell you how many times you're on a, you're supposed to be covert and surveillance and everybody shows up at the same time and almost everyone has, almost, almost everyone has the same vehicle. And I think even Bosch in this particular chapter said, if the uh, perpetrators had a lookout at any of the high rises, then they would know something's going on with this little parade of uh, cops coming up the ramp. And when we get there, like I said, an ad hoc surveillance team is assembled and you have different in law enforcement. You again, you have to work with other people to get your job done. And but it's, it is a very delicate balance between dealing with law enforcement personnel and you deal with the civilian world. We call it the civilian world. We get we, as they assemble. There's a DPW guy. There's people from the local police department that's there. Um, LAPD, which, which is Harry. FBI, and then they have the uh, FBI SWAT team. And so they get there when they when they get there, everyone wants to you know everyone gets their two cents on how they're going to proceed. Everyone gets insight on trying to come up with a game plan on exactly how they should take down this particular group. And inside this meeting, Rourke automatically takes over. You know he he's the alpha dog. He's the FBI, and this goes towards. Almost every stereotype of FBI, the worst stereotypes of the FBI, where they come in and just Bigfoot, as we call Bigfoot, which means to take their foot and just push you out the way. You know, you local guys, you small people, you don't know what you're doing. We're, we're the big fish. We're gonna, we're gonna solve this problem. And Rourke actually flexes on the captain in front of his men when it comes to the game plan, how they're going to do something. In this particular portion of the book, he actually said, "Look, you, you, you were brought in here as an observer." So this particular, with Beverly Hills Safe and Lock is in Beverly Hills. And they have this, they assemble, some of the people of this ad hoc team are from the uh, Beverly Hills. And the captain who's there is assembled with some of his guys. And he, he everyone has their own interest in this particular uh, operation. He tells the Beverly Hills guy who his interest is to save the the, the, the citizens and the property and protect the property 
of his citizens of his constituents within Beverly Hills. And the the investigative plan or strategic plan is to, hey, we're going to wait till those guys come out of the tunnel to take them down then and surprise them because we don't want a battle. The SWAT leader doesn't like the tactics of just going in in the blind, not knowing where they're going to come up from the floor. You know, you're losing the element of surprise. Again, as I was telling you in previous podcasts, cops like people to react to us. We don't like to react to them. And so they determined there was not enough time to get a tactical advantage to go in as those guys were robbing the bank. The captain, understanding what's about to happen, that the bank, they're going to actually let the, well, it's not really a bank, but the, the safe and lock to get robbed. He kind of pushes back on and said, well, let's just like, like throw flashbangs in there or something like that. But again, they shot, they shoot this down because you never, we knew these guys had booby traps and a flashbang is an explosive. It's just, it's a controlled explosive, but it's explosive. And you never know that explosive could detonate other uh, explosive. And as they pointed out here, it, you, you can have the whole city street uh, fall in. So that wasn't a good idea. But I think Rourke tried to, but ultimately he kind of put the kibosh on the captain. And again, the captain is around his own people. And again, being part of a, uh, I, I was part of a federal task force and the local PD. And the way Rourke kind of pushed back or big footed the, the captain was basically said, hey, look, you're just an observer here. You're, you're, your your considerations is duly noted, but yeah, we really won't be needing you unless we'll call you in. And the captain said, "Well, I'm, if I, you're not going to play by my rules, or I'm going to have input. I'm taking my guys, and we're going to move on." Now Rourke had to deal with the. He was getting input from the DPW guy, and the DPW guy was really, really, really informative. Had a lot of good information. I mean, that's his job. He knew he knew the sewers. He knew the tunnels. He knew everything. He was really giving them some insights on where these guys possibly set up on, what they were going to do. And he seemed to be spot on. But again, Rourke did, did something I've seen happen a, a million times. And again, just think about what this DPW guy, the next time he deal with law enforcement, after he gave his information, Rourke says, yeah, you can go sit in the car now. And, you know, there's better ways to handle that. I, me, I would have – so me, again, I know this ad hoc. And, again, I'm doing it right now. So I, I, I fully understand. I fully admit I'm doing the hindsight 2020 thing. But me, I have two meetings. I would have had a meeting with the, the DPW guy and – soak up all his information so all my law enforcement personnel will hear what he has to say and then I wouldn't summarily just dismiss him I would then tell the guy you know don't go sit in the car but then I would have a separate meeting you know to kind of soften the blow a little bit to this poor DPW guy because again imagine next time okay it was FBI today say the next time Secret Service had an operation how forthcoming do you think he's going to be? You know, how how engaging do you think he's going to be when he finds out that, well, I've dealt with, the, uh, I've dealt with law enforcement before. They want to hear what I have to say, but I won't, I'm not here. Or I can't be privy enough to what's going on and how they're going to tactically do it. 
Again, I get what Rourke did, and I totally understand because you want to control the situation as much as possible. And a civilian is loose control because once he leaves, you don't know what he's going to do, how it's going to happen. I totally understand what he did. I'm not saying what he did was wrong. I'm just saying I hopefully I've been in that situation when I was the team lead and I had to rock and roll with civilians. There's different ways that you can control that. One, you you possibly can keep the team. You can tell the guy, thank you very much. Or we're going to now have a separate meeting with the tactics on it. I really appreciate it. You, you can do a little bit more explaining. Or if you had enough time, you can then convene another meeting with just law enforcement. The investigator and SWAT team or the, the surveillance team come up with different ideas on how to tactfully or tactically, excuse me, handle this particular operation. And it's decided that they're going to put Beverly Hills safe and lock inside the box. And what that means inside the box pretty much is just what it, it appears to be. At the street level, all four corners on the street will be covered by a surveillance team. And they will then report. Everyone has different plans. I believe I like doing every 15 minutes. Some people like doing it. Again, it's up to the team lead. Every 15 minutes, just, hey, nothing's going on. Nothing's here. And you really get a flow Everyone, one, it keeps everyone awake. Two, it keeps everyone sharp. And if you see something, you say something. And then it's also decided that SWAT will go into the tunnels with DPW and, and, and sweep the tunnels to see if they can find any egress or place where they might be coming out the tunnel. So just before they, they break, uh, Bosch, is, uh, Bosch and Eleanor, one of the FBI guys, brings a package that, that Edgar, good old Edgar, dropped off to Bosch. And it was at the beginning of this at the beginning of this book, Bosch had ordered Meadows uh, military records from the from the VA, the Veterans Administration. Because uh, remember, FBI had had, had took Bosch's uh, medals and everyone else's records, so he wanted to get his own copy so he can do some evaluations. But he said, as he said in this chapter right here, he didn't need to go through it anymore because uh, he already had that information. He looked over the records that Eleanor had gave him. So they set up on the location, and again, Michael brings you in the world when it comes to surveillances. Surveillance, surveillance, uh, doing the surveillance is the is is the longest and the most glamorized, which is bullshit portion of law enforcement. Because, but you you love it, and he even said the same thing again about driving in a car. A, a mark of a good partners that you don't have to really talk to them and you only talk to people when you have to talk to people so as the surveillance to as the surveillance starts they immediately get information from SWAT that the jeep associated with these criminals have been found this information was gathered by listening to what the DPW guy who again remember they that Rourke kind of told him go sit in the corner now we the big boys are working again I gotta point that out again you never know where you're gonna need some help in law enforcement so treat civilians well you want to treat anyone nice but just be a little bit more patient, I guess. And again, I'm, I'm dealing with 29 years of experience. I know for the fact when <laughs> I was a young detective, I, I wasn't as smooth as I think I am now. Matter of fact, some people will say I never, my edges never really got smooth. But I, I don't think I had the patience and temperament back then, knowing what, it, what I know now. I would tell a young detective, hey, dude, slow your roll. Be, be more patient. You know, that's what I would tell a young Phil. So Eleanor and Bosch talk about the Jeep. You know, hey, I, they, I think um, they were in the process of getting a warrant for the Jeep based on 
information they got from Sharky. So after this thing is taken down, you want to get warrants for everything. If you got time to get a warrant, get a warrant. That's that's rule of thumb in law enforcement. It's easy, and you can. It's easier to explain exigent circumstances, and to a to a judge doing a motion hearing because it will happen that hey, because of exigent circumstances, I I didn't get a warrant. I went in and did what I had to do, and most judges will understand exigent circumstances. But it's kind of hard to explain exigent circumstances to a judge when you were on surveillance and nothing was happening. So at this time, so they talked about getting a warrant for the Jeep and Bosch makes a relevation, uh, uh, Bosch makes an observation like, do you feel like everything is falling into place too easily? And Eleanor questions him, what do you mean? I mean, that's, it's kind of crazy. What fell into place? And Bosch is, is skeptical. That's, he's that type of guy. And, and cop work is usually not that easy. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes we catch the, the, the stupid guy. Sometimes sometimes shit happens. But Bosch, in my mind right now, is thinking these guys, these these criminals, have been almost like one step ahead of them. You know, especially when they killed Sharky. Somebody's on inside. Now things are just falling into place. And sometimes if it's falling into place, am I being misdirected somehow? That's, again, I'm assuming. And him and Eleanor had this back and forth when it comes to, you know, Sharky, and the investigation, uh, she says, Eleanor, she is, and Eleanor says, well, you know, this is just good cop work. You know, we did this, we did that. This is just good cop work. So as they settle in on their, on the surveillance, Bosch makes note, you know, he never really mind having or doing stakeouts or surveillances in his 15 years on uh, the department. And per the book, you know, from the book, Bosch says, but in 15 years on the job, had never minded a single stakeout. In fact, many times he enjoyed them when he was good company. And he's defined good company not by the conversation, but the lack of it. When there's no need to talk to feel comfortable, that was the right company. And I agree with him. You know, we talk to be talking. Sometimes you want to just be on the surveillance by, by, by yourself. And again, I think my brother pointed out last time, I, I was that type of guy. If, if I didn't have the right company, I'd rather be, be in the car by myself. It was harder. Because you had to really stay focused, you couldn't be, uh, especially on your on your corner. You you know the other teams are depending on you to make sure that their backs are covered. And, and nowadays, you I see it now. You see young guys on their phones, they're texting, playing video games, watching movies on their phones, and you're like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? This is a surveillance. You know, you get off that thing again. Back back in 1992, we didn't have such things. And so you you were really focused on the task at hand, and today everything is everything is so it's so hard to do that because you're, there's so many other distractions. You have a telephone. See again, just to put you in the world of 1992 surveillance, you didn't have a telephone where the office was calling you. You you were really isolated sometimes, and that's I, again I'm perceiving Harry one of the reasons he likes to stake out because. You're away from the office. Nobody can contact you. You got one mission, one focus, and that's it. Anyone who needs you, come across the radio because we go across the radio. And so it wasn't any bullshit. It was strictly about business to handle business. Nowadays, you, you tell your supervisor, hey, you do a, uh, a, you're doing a, um, a surveillance, but people act as, as though you're still in the office because you're on a telephone, you, know, you have email. Hell, nowadays you have access to, of course, you have internet access and there's good and bad in that you know there's there's good and bad in 
and having that technology there because I definitely use that technology on, on surveillances all the time to help, especially now when I want to run a tag, I didn't have to go across the air with the dispatcher to, to run a tag. Or if I see a particular name or something that interests me when it comes to the, the surveillance, I was able to, to you know, get that information at my fingertips. But that come at a cost because now I'm distracted, not doing what my primary job was. And again, if you buy yourself, you're 1099, you have to weigh out which is more advantageous to the surveillance and accomplishing the mission. Also, doing the surveillance, now he has time to really think. And one of the things that Boss thought about was why the night before did the, that car come at them? Why kill a cop and a federal agent? It didn't make sense. And it really doesn't make sense because the only thing you're going to do is draw more attention to yourself or to the investigation because then it really get magnified. Not only do you have a bank robbery, now you have someone who, who kills cops or law enforcement. And as you know, Michael Michael expressed it, you know, as you know, you're messing with you're messing with a loose tooth with your tongue. You know, it's kind of you just can't stop it. So he's you know, he's lamenting over and thinking about this over and over and over again in his mind, rolling at different angles in his mind. Why did that person do that? What did they know at that time that made it dangerous to one kill Sharky and two to try to take them out of this investigation? Also during the surveillance. It's apparent that Eleanor is also thinking about things because she comes at Bosch and she says, hey, Harry, tell me about the Black Echo. What you said the other day, what does that mean, the Black Echo? And so then Bosch actually goes into the where the Black Echo came from, how it came up, how it came to be. And you can really tell that never went away from Harry. I'm not, by this time, I'm guessing, you know, if he was been on 15 years on LAPD, had another after he came back. So maybe that was 20 years ago in his mind. But the description of what happened in the Black Echo has never left Harry. So part of this conversation that he's telling Eleanor about the Black Echo, he had one memory that never that he can't ever seem to forget that comes up constantly in his dreams. And this memory was, you know, one that he explained it earlier, but he also did a great job here is to find the different interests of the tunnels. Uh, on, one, on one expedition, they were pu pumping smoke into the, 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 the holes they could find so they can look at, find other entry holes. And the whole jungle, jungle turned into this purple haze, as he said. And he remembers um, Meadows popping a cassette tape in, playing Jimi Hendrix, um, Purple Haze. And he said ever, ever since then, he never liked rock and roll. So I wonder... How much when he when when he is in Michael wrote this? How much was that of him coming into it, or where did he get that information about the rock and roll aspect to this era opposed to the jazz? During this conversation, Bosch pretty much asked Eleanor, "Did you ever feel visit the wall?" And she said, "Well, she when she was living in D.C., she did visit it. She just couldn't bring herself to for the dedication when they actually first dedicated the wall." And but she said, "You know, but a year or two later, she finally." Uh, got the courage to go see her brother's name. She thought maybe it would kind of sort out things for herself. And Bosch says, well, did it kind of sort things out? And she actually said, no, nah, it kind of made things worse. You know, it kind of left her angry. And she said, you know, it felt, it felt as though it, she wanted some type of, she needed some type of justice. And then Bosch didn't reply to this. Bosch, you know, as, as Michael wrote, wrote from the book, 
He thought of the rage Eleanor must have felt because of her brother, the hopelessness. He thought of his own rage and knew the same feeling, maybe not the same degree, but a different perspective. So in this silence, as Harry's thinking about the tunnel and the sadness, Eleanor asks him, hey, remember the other day you were talking talk to me about the Dollmaker case? And Harry says, yeah, what about it? He said, well, I.D. tried to make a case against you, you know, as they quote-unquote executed him. And Harry said, yeah, they tried to, but the only thing they got him on was some administrative uh, violations. And then she says, you know, from the book, Eleanor says, well, I just wanted to say, even if they were right, they were wrong. That would have been justice in my book. You know, what would happen to that guy? Look at Night Stalker. He never get the gas or it'll take 20 years. And Bosch kind of felt uncomfortable. He really never, he only had thought about his motive and his action of the doll case alone. He never spoke about it aloud. And, you know, and where was Eleanor going with this? And this is where she said, I know pretty much if you did seek justice, justice for that lady, justice for your mom, that it would have been okay in my book. And Bosch was kind of shocked at this. But then he remembered that she had his personnel file and she knew about his mother and really didn't have to say too much what she did as a, as a profession because where she was found dead, uh, that she was found dead. And then he remembered that Eleanor had his personnel jacket. And in the personnel jacket, of course, on all applications you had to for your different party evaluations, they asked you some very personal questions. And I think he explained in this portion of the book that he had to put down that his mother had died and, and she had died on Hollywood Boulevard, strangled in the alley. And so you don't have to put two and two together to know that strangled in the alley, Hollywood Boulevard, at this time was a, was a strip where prostitution or prostitutes hung out. So after, after the shock wore off, um, he asked Eleanor, so what's your point? And she said, you know, really no point. I just, you know, respect that. And that's what she says to her, you know, says to, excuse me, says to Harry, if it was her, she hoped that if things would happen in the same situation with the doll maker, that she hoped that she was brave enough to do what he did. You know, after Eleanor says to Harry that what he did, if she said it was right in his book, pretty much taking the law in his own hands, I really think she really misunderstood Harry. Again, I, don't, I can't get too much into it because I've gone through all the books. But let's just say from this point on, right at this moment, I don't see Harry as being that type of guy. Because he would, was, he would join the family. He would do things, quote unquote, to support the family, go along and get along. And I don't see him as some avenging angel out there righting wrongs that way. Yes, but he, he, he is, but he tries to pretty much stay within the legal bounds. And to take a life for his own personal motives, I, I just don't see him being that way. Tell me what you think. If you feel that way, uh, write, me, write me back on this particular point because it is very interesting. I'd I like to hear what, you, what you, uh, you guys have to say about that. So as we finish up this chapter, Eleanor asked Bosch, uh, quote, unquote, did you ever hear what J. Edgar Hoover said about justice? And again, J. Edgar Hoover was a powerful leader of uh, the FBI. And Bosch said, well, no, he probably said a lot. Again, from the book, he said that justice was incidental to law and order. I think he was right.
My everyone counts or no one counts moment for the first time, I think it's going to be Eleanor. I got to check the records, but I believe it's Eleanor for my first time. And I wanted, I like Eleanor in this chapter. It's getting great Eleanor development that's going on with Michael. It's so subtle. But one, I like the fact how after IED and FBI and everyone interviewed Bosch and her, she hung around with him. And two, she, that didn't dissuade her to still want to have some type of uh, intimate relationship with, with Harry, even though they said, you know, it was articulated that just cuddled that night or they just huddled together that night. And then the next day when they start putting the pieces together on trying to develop Ben and coming into this rhythm of, of interviews and, you know, good cop, bad cop. And then how she really got me was when Harry put that uh, Niagara, that transmitter, that bug into Ben's phone, she rock and rolled with him. And that says a lot. That does say a lot. You know, and we're in it together. You know, good, bad, or indifferent, we're, we're in it together. She first, you know, was kind of hesitant to do it. But when Harry explained it, she's like, okay. And again, the, the when, then when they went to trans, she rock and roll, came on to fly her own plan on identifying and making sure Tran was who they thought he was, you know, Mr. Bach. Valence, the fact that, you know, she started, you know, you start seeing this dark side of Eleanor. And you start, you know, you're caring about Eleanor, but you start seeing, uh, uh, Michael has been throughout this book hinting at the loneliness, the darkness, her pain when it comes to her brother. And you really start to see that come out. So in this particular chapter, I'm going to give my Everyone Counts But No One Counts moment to Eleanor Wish. Well, friends, I hope you had just as much fun as I had during this particular episode of The Thin Blue Line, Harry Bosch. And please join me next time where I will continue doing a deep dive of the Black Echo, and we will be going into Part 7, Saturday, May 26th. And if you could be so kind to continue the subscription on to Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks so much for everyone remembering to give us five stars or better. Again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me come into your lives. Bye.